Hi, Mama. Now, if you haven't picked up a copy of the handouts, there are packets at the back. Both piles are duplicates. I want to begin tonight with John 3.36. which is at the end of this uh, interesting section of chapter 3. My argument is that these are the words of Jesus, but setting that aside, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now this verse contains a number of the Johannine dualisms, or implicit dualisms. You notice the contrast between believes and does not obey, which is tantamount to does not believe. So those are antithetically or dualistically related. You will notice eternal life over against shall not see life. Those are definitely uh, antithetically, dualistically related then the wrath of God would imply its opposite, namely the grace of God, though it's not expressed, it's implied in the dualism, and abides on him or remains on him would imply its opposite, namely is removed from him or does not abide on him. I'm underscoring the present tense of the verbs here. I want you to notice that this verse, whether it's the words of Jesus or some other, is emphatically underscoring the present aspect. The person that believes has eternal life. That is a present reality now. The person that does not believe does not obey, shall not see life. That is a present reality now. The person that does not believe, does not obey, who does not or shall not see life, has the wrath of God. That is a present reality now. And the wrath of God abides, remains, stays upon him. It is a present reality now. This verse is a very emphatic underscoring of the guilt of original sin in Johannine categories, namely that one does not have to reach a particular stage subsequent to birth or conception in order to have the wrath of God abiding on him. The wrath of God remains on him already. Everyone outside of grace, outside of believing on the Son, outside of eternal life as a present reality is abiding, remaining, staying under the wrath of God. It is already there. The only way that that wrath will be removed, the only way that that wrath will be taken away, the only way that eternal life can replace eternal wrath is if they believe on the Son. 
This is a now realization or a now actualization of an eschatological reality. You will notice eternal life is connected to has faith now. What comes with the now exercise of faith or the now gift of faith is an eternal reality, which means that on the other side, on the other side of the eternal life, namely the eternal wrath, is a is a present now reality in an anti-eschatological stance. What do I mean by that? I mean that if eternal life is a present eschatological reality for the person that believes on the Son, then eternal wrath is also a present eschatological reality for the person that does not believe on the Son. This verse has a positive eschatological vector and it has an anti-eschatological vector. It has a positive eternal life vector and it has a negative eternal wrath vector. The two of them are inseparably related. They are tandem realities. There is no such thing as a person in neutrality in this created and fallen world. There is no such thing because they are already under the wrath of God if they are not under the eternal life of the Son. Now, this eschatological and anti-eschatological paradigm raises the question about the kind of eschatology that we're dealing with overall in the Gospel of John, and in fact, I would make a case for the eschatology of the New Testament in general. First of all... This eschatology is not a fully realized eschatology. Now, a fully realized eschatology would say that now the fullest realization of eschatological realities is accomplished. That eschatological now is completed which means that the present time is the eschatological era, and any future time has no eschatological significance. In other words, the now time is the only time, eschatologically speaking. The future time has no eschatological significance because there is no heaven or hell. There are no future eschatological realities, It is now or nothing. Now, this is the eschatology of liberalism. It is also the eschatology of all social and political utopianisms, whether they be fascist, socialist, or communistic. As Eric Vogelin, the brilliant late political scientist, University of Louisiana, said, This is the immanentization of the eschaton. All political utopians, all political liberalisms are ultimately immanentizations of heaven on earth. The bringing of heaven on earth now. And so your liberal theologies, whether they be neo-orthodoxy, whether they be liberation theologies, whether they be feminist theologies, All those liberal theologies are now fully realized eschatological theologies. There is 
no future, which means that they de-eschatologize the future. They de-eschatologize the future. Now, that is not what we have here in the Gospel of John, nor do we have it in the New Testament, nor do we have it in the whole Bible. So, we can uh, cross this out. Uh, There was a British scholar in the 1920s named C.H. Dodd who advanced this on the basis of his analysis of the parables of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. He did modify his position later on, but C.H. Dodd is associated with this New Testament variety of fully realized eschatology. However, all liberalism absolutizes it. All right, so we're, we are not a fully now eschatology, all right? Nor are we a fully eschatology, an eschatology to be fully realized. We are not talking about a completely or fully not yet eschatology when we're looking at the Gospel of John or the New Testament. Now, a fully not yet eschatology would say that the present is de-eschatologized and the future is the eschatological finality, the eschatological uh, dimension. Now, you'll notice that when you place the not yet as the fully eschatological, you have de-eschatologized, you have de-eschatologized the present. Now, all premillennialism and postmillennialism is a not yet eschatological paradigm. They de-eschatologize the present because they absolutize the not yet. That makes the present aspect of the church or the Christian life less than the not yet aspect, which is the fully eschatological. Now, both of these are extremes. Conservative believers do accept this paradigm, uh, tragically for them, they're not reading the New Testament correctly, uh, which means that we're left with the correct view, which is, as Calvinism so often is, a both-and view. It is a both now and not yet. as a semi-realized eschatology. That means that the New Testament is talking about an eschatological realization provisionally now in the present and an eschatological realization to be consummately or perfectly realized not yet in heaven. The Christian lives between the now and the not yet, the Christian's life is folded into this semi-realized eschatological reality. Now, this is amillennialism, and the term is Gerhardus Voss's from numerous 
spots in his writings. The eschatological aspect of the Pauline conception of the spirit, Pauline eschatology, the eschatology of the Psalter, all of these are foundational to Voss's coining of this term. But all Voss is doing is giving a vocabulary to describe the now-not-yet relationship in the New Testament. Now, you can see that in this, uh, in this verse. In John 3:36, there is this now aspect of eternal life, but there is obviously an eternal aspect to that eternal life, which is not yet. You have it now, you will have it consummately, perfectly, for all eternity. Now, apply that to the anti-eschatological uh, comment that I made earlier. The wrath of God abides now on the person who has it remaining on them, and it will abide not yet, it will not be removed, unless it is taken away by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life is gifted in its place. Everyone, every human being is living in a now-not-yet semi-realized eschatological state. They are either in a now-not-yet semi-realized eschatological state of blessedness, or they are in an already now-not-yet semi-realized eschatological state of cursedness, malediction. Every human being is in this paradigm. And therefore, anyone who is presently in the anti-eschatological paradigm must, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, flee the wrath to come, which is already abiding on you. It is coming in its fully realized eschatological hellish damnable way, but it is already on you. Flee the wrath to come that abides on you now and have eternal life now in the Son of God. All right, this dynamic, dramatic, all-millennial, biblical eschatology is the way the writers think out of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot think any other way. You could no more have the New Testament writers thinking this way or this way. Because, you see, if they thought either way, they would be thinking Judaistically. Now, <clears throat> moving on to chapter 4, I want you to notice from the handout that I've given you the uh, macrostructure and the microstructure, but beginning with the microstructure of uh, John 4, uh, I've set it up in relationship to the paradigm of sequence and parallels or repetitions that are present from chapter 2.23 on. And you will notice the similarities in those paradigms. Now, Jesus is withdrawing himself in John chapter 2 and again in John chapter 4. And in withdrawing himself, he is found by those coming to him. 
He is found by Nicodemus after John chapter 2.23. He is found by the woman at the well after John 4.1. And both of those who find Jesus find something they do not expect, something they at first misunderstand. Nicodemus finds a birth out of heaven. The woman at the well finds water springing up to eternal life. Jesus withdraws, is found by someone coming to him, and surprisingly they find in him something they never expected to find. But I want you also to note that Nicodemus is a Jewish male, and the Samaritan woman is a Gentile female. Ironically, a Pharisaic Jew becomes identified with Christ, and a Gentile outcast becomes identified with Christ. We look at verse 42 rather, of chapter 4, and there we note that the Samaritans have labeled Jesus the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of Jewish Pharisees and Gentile adulterers. Now, notice one more structural pattern here. You have in verse 43 a return to a time shift marker. That is, Jesus spends two days with the Samaritans and then he goes off to Galilee. We change days, we change uh, time sequence, and that means we shift our camera to the next scene or to the next unit. In this particular case, you notice that the end of one narrative is the beginning of another. The end of the Samaritan woman narrative is the beginning of the narrative about the nobleman and his son. But this 43rd verse also implies a prior beginning. If you notice verse 3, the phrase into Galilee is duplicated as it is in verse 43. We therefore have an inclusio of location bracketing the incident of Jesus and the woman at the well and the Samaritans who come to meet him on her testimony. That means that we have a unit, a narrative unit, between chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 43. Now, within that unit, I am suggesting a narrative analysis that divides the unit itself into two acts. Two acts with respect to Jesus and the drama with the woman at the well and its aftermath. Act 1, verses 7 to 46, and Act 2, verses 27 to 38. Now, I want you to notice what delineates these two acts. In Act 1, Jesus and the woman are prominent from verses 7 to 26. The disciples are in the background. In verse 8, they have gone away into the city. They are off stage. On stage, Act 1, Jesus and the woman around Jacob's well at Sychar. Act 2. Verses 27 to 38, Jesus and the disciples are prominent. The woman is in the background in verses 28 and 29. She gives her own valedictory. She gives her own farewell. She does not appear again. Jesus, Jesus and the disciples 
replace the prominence of Jesus and the woman. Now, the fact that the disciples are folded into the total drama is significant for their sake. For their sake. There is something that they must understand about the significance of Jesus' dialogue with this woman at the well. All right, a more particular narrative analysis looking at Act 1, verses 7 to 26. The scene shift begins in Jesus' move from Judea to Samaria. You can see on the map that I indicated to, gave to you in the handouts how he is moving north. The woman is front and center. The disciples are off camera. Then scene one of Act 1 is verses 7 to 15. You will notice that this scene begins the dialogue with an imperative. Jesus asks, give me a drink. And it ends in verse 15 with an imperative. She asks, give me this water. The focus in this, uh, in this scene is upon the water, but the water which functions at two different levels. Johannine misunderstanding. Scene two is verses 16 to 26, where the dialogue begins with imperatives again. Jesus commands, go, call, come. The focus in this scene is upon her character, the character of the woman and the identity of Jesus. Who is this one with whom she is speaking? And it ends up in a discussion about the nature of worship. This second scene ends in verse 26 with ego eimi, the Greek phrase for I am. The bracketing then transfers the, the movement or the action to the camera picking up the disciples so that act two is also subdivided into two scenes. Verses 27 to 38 with the woman backstage the disciples' front stage, and in verse 29, another imperative. C. Finally, scene 2, verses 39 to 42, the witness of the woman as it has worked itself out in the Samaritans coming to Jesus, the dialogue with the disciples about the harvest, the ingathering of the Gentiles, and this ends, this unit ends, with the declaration that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is beginning to gather in the eschatological harvest of the nations, which the prophets foretold as the mark of the coming of the age of the kingdom of God. When the Gentiles come to the kingdom of the Lord God, then we shall know that the last days have arrived upon us. Now, Act 3 of Chapter 4 is outside the Samaritan woman and her countrymen dialogue. It is the scene shift from Samaria to Galilee, especially to Cana of Galilee, and the reception by the Galileans and the reception by the nobleman and his son. Now, let's look at this encounter with the woman at the well. This is an encounter which is developed by dialogue. The exchanges between the woman and Jesus are indicative of character, but the characterization here 
in John 4, 7 to 26 is not through action. It is not through movement. It is not through narrative prose. This characterization is through conversation. We learn who this woman is. We understand what she is at her existential core. We understand how Jesus alone is able to satisfy her. All of this we learn through her words. She is an immoral woman living in adultery, verse 18. She is a woman whose love life has been an endless search for satisfaction, but still she is unsatisfied. She has had an insatiable thirst for sexual satisfaction, but she can get no satisfaction. Her desires are physical, carnal, and earthly. But at Jacob's well, she meets one who knows her as no man ever knew her. At Jacob's well, she encounters one who draws her toward an arena which is spiritual, heavenly, pure. The encounter with Christ in John 4 is transforming. And John's record of this lengthy discourse with a woman at that well is transforming as well. That Jesus would entertain a detailed conversation with a woman is a sign that he is no ordinary rabbi, rabbi. For a rabbi, you see, was forbidden to speak with a woman in public. Notice the implication of that in verse 27. But this rabbi, this rabbi, transcends all the rules of tradition. This rabbi replaces tradition with face-to-face encounter. Come, poor sinful woman to Jacob's well, and I will give you water such as no one else can give you. This eschatological rabbi says to women, come and welcome. Says to non-Jewish women, come and welcome. Says to sinful non-Jewish women, come and welcome. If the first lengthy dialogue in the fourth gospel is between Jesus and a man, Nicodemus, then it is worthy of note that the second lengthy dialogue in this gospel is between Jesus and a woman, and a Gentile woman at that. And throughout this gospel, women will be viewed positively as those with equal access to Jesus and the new creation which he brings At Jacob's well, Jesus reveals that he is no chauvinist, and you better not be either. Or you are outside the paradigm of Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus asks of her, verse 7, notice that imperative, give me a drink. Jesus seeks water from this woman. His request is greeted by flippancy, flippancy tinged with incredulity. You're a Jew. 
How is it that you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Five husbands have made this woman a bit of a tart. But Jesus is undeterred. His encounter with this woman is under the divine necessity. Notice verse 4. He had to, Greek a day, he had to. The vertical intersecting with the horizontal, the eschatological necessity penetrating the temporal reality. I bring you a gift of God. I bring you the water of life. Because of who I am, I am able to give you living water. But her incredulity persists. Though now her flippant tone of mockery is replaced by a naive interrogative. You have nothing with which to draw. Are you greater than Father Jacob? She has been disarmed by Jesus to the point that terse mockery in her tone of voice has been replaced by inquisitiveness. She's beginning to assume the role Nicodemus displayed, the inquisitive seeker. Who are you? And what resources do you possess? Jesus has deftly, Jesus has ever so deftly turned her attention from herself to himself. She now seeks from him. Jacob's water will leave you thirsty. My water will leave you satisfied. Jacob's water will run out. You will have to come back day in, day out, year in, year out, to replenish your depleted resources, my water will never run out. It will become a spring of living water within you. My water will flow forever, a living fountain, a well of eternal life, a never-ending life stream. The gift which I offer is from an order not of this world, The water which I bring is from an arena which transcends Jacob Israel, Jew and Samaritan. I bring you a gift from the eschatological arena. I offer you water which is eschatological. I offer you the water of eschatological life. Now, she is beyond flippancy at this point. She is beyond naive incredulity. She is beyond the inquisitive. She eagerly, she desperately, she demandingly implores, give me this water. Notice the imperative again. How the roles have been changed. The seeker has become the giver. The erstwhile giver has become the seeker. Please note again those imperative phrases in verses 7 and 15. Give me a drink. Give me this water. Reverse language of virtual duplicate parallelism. What Jesus sought from her ostensibly, she now seeks from him really. But her horizon... Her horizon is no broader than Jacob's well and her own water pot. Jesus remains a mere Jew with a thirst for water 
who claims a miracle spring which will end these daily noontide treks. She has to come at high noon. She's the outcast of the women in the village. Yes, when it's hot and nobody else comes, that's when she has to come. He has revealed the eschatological gift. Now he must reveal the eschatological giver. Go, call your husband and come back. Verse 16, Jesus is abrupt, terse, imperious. Mm, The imperative returns. Go, call, come back. I have no husband. And for the first time, she and Jesus are interacting on the same plane. No facades, no double meanings, no flippancy, no self-serving demands. You have had five husbands, and you now live with a man, not your husband. We've gotten down to the truth. And the self-confessed truth about her begins to draw aside the veil of the as-yet-unconfessed truth about him. Sir, you are a prophet. Indeed, a prophet and more. She knows that the prophet Moses was behind the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Samaritan tradition, which induced her and her countrymen in Samaria to worship on Mount Gerizim. The cult at Jerusalem, according to the Samaritans, was of less worth. It was inferior to the cult imposed by the Samaritan Mosaic Pentateuch. Surely a prophet would know these things. Surely he would. And this prophet, for he's a prophet indeed, this prophet transcends both Gerizim and Jerusalem. This prophet surpasses both Jacob and Moses. This prophet eschatologizes worship. He talks about worship as if it doesn't matter whether it's on Gerizim or Zion. He talks about worship in an arena of spirit truth. He is more than a prophet. You see the pattern, the water that Jesus gives transcends the well in Samaria. The worship the Father seeks transcends Samaria and Judea. It is not just the de-eschatologization of sacred space, whether it's Samaria or Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. It is the eschatologization of spirit truth. Human spirit in the arena of God the Spirit. Truth shaped not only by the wholeness of the divine human encounter, but truth which is conformed to the fullness of truth incarnate Jesus Christ, the Logos of the Father. You can only get to that arena through me. Not through this mountain, not through that mountain but only through me. Worship for this time. Worship for the now time, says Jesus in John 4, is no longer a derivative of institutionalization. No more sacred space and sacred place. Worship is not an imposition of form, whether it is liturgical 
or blue jean casual. Worship is a transposition, a spirit communing with the spirit, capital S, a life truly possessed with the one who is life, capital L. Worship is now an invitation to an arena where spirit, truth, capital S, capital T, abide forever. It is not an imposition by Gerizim or Jerusalem upon the worshiper. It is not a participation by the worshiper in a spirit arena which surpasses every earthly mountain. It is exceedingly heavenly in its orientation and in its reality. Jesus reveals to the Samaritan woman not that worship is a ghostly, nebulous, mystical experience. Jesus reveals to the Samaritan woman that worship is an entrance into the arena of the Father, an entrance into the arena of the fullness of salvation, a salvation fullness which now transcends Jerusalem and Gerizim and Geneva, Switzerland and Seoul, Korea and Westminster Abbey and Linwood, Washington. Worship is a summons. It is an entrance into a heavenly arena, an eschatological communion in spirit and in truth. Every hymn, every prayer, every offering, every sermon, every sacrament is a praise, a plea, a response, a proclamation, a sign and seal of an eschatological arena. Our worship must be a reflection of the hour that now is, the hour brought by the incarnation of the Son of God. And if you trivialize this hour of worship, you have trivialized the hour in which you now live. And if you make this hour of worship like the rest of the culture in which you live, you will have reduced worship to the level of the earthly and the visceral and the guttural. And when you do it, you have stepped outside of the arena that Jesus reveals for worship in John chapter 4. You are no longer worshiping at all. You are entertaining. The woman pierces the veil of Jesus' identity a bit further, for she recognizes that he is a prophet who reveals the de-eschatologizing of Samaria's fathers and their mountain by eschatologizing the heavenly father and his heavenly mountain throne room. But is he more than a prophet? I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us things such as you have told me. Ego me. I know that when the Christ appears, all things will be open to him. Gerizim, Jerusalem, Jacob's well, my five husbands and my illicit lover. Ego me. Now she knows. She knows that this giver of eschatological water is the eschatological Lord. She knows that this one who displaces Jacob's well 
this one who transcends Gerizim's mount, this one who annuls Jerusalem's precedence, is himself the eschatological fountain, the eschatological mountain, the eschatological city. He is the eschatological I am that I am. What is her water pot? What is her piddly water pot in the presence of this fountain of living water? She leaves it. She leaves it. And runs and declares, come and see. What is her mountain? What is her measly little Samaritan mountain in the presence of this one who reveals the Father to her immediately? Immediately. Come and see. What is her illicit sex life? What is her illicit sex life in the presence of this one who knows every detail of her sexuality? Come and see! Come and see a man who has told me all things. All things. This is the Christ. This is the Christ, is it not? Yes, it is. And she has found her Christ. And they come. They come streaming like living water, these Samaritans. They come like fields ripe for the harvest, these Samaritans. They come to Jesus. They come. And they want him to stay, to abide with them. Mene, verse 40. There's that word again, to remain, abide. And Jesus stays, giving living water to thirsty souls, giving eschatological life to lifeless souls, giving the glory of His Father to ignorant souls, giving spirit and truth to benighted souls. They come. The Samaritans come to Jesus and confess, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The disciples, the disciples marvel. The disciples have begun to see the harvest of the nations. The disciples misunderstand. The disciples hear that Jesus has meat which is not of this world, even as he has water which is not of this world, and that food, that meat and drink, they, yes they, must devour and imbibe. For the hour is coming, and now is, when the eschatological harvest of the nations has begun, and these disciples will be folded down into that great commission. The Samaritans are the first fruits. They are the first fruits of the ingathering of the Gentiles. This proleptic anticipation of Paul's Damascus Road commission in Acts 9 and Peter's vision in Acts 10 is John's fulfillment of the prophetic promises wherein the nations flow up to the hill of the Lord. The nations flow up to the hill of the Lord. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, the nations go up to the hill of the Lord. There is no puny mountaintop in Jerusalem on this earth that can accommodate that assembly. None! 
you are not going to pack that elect multitude from every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven on the top of the mosque of the rock. You're not going to do it. They are going up to an eternal city in a heavenly Jerusalem upon a mountain that does not burn with fire. They're going to the Lord's own eternal temple city forever. And here in John 4, the first fruits of that Gentile ascent to the place where they now worship in spirit and in truth. The missionary task of the church is an eschatological drama. And any church which retreats from its missionary task is retreating from the drama of the New Testament gospel. Do you not desire with all your heart that those amongst the nations who dwell in darkness now abiding under the wrath of God receive the gift of eternal life now that not yet that wrath of God may not abide upon them. Surely you do. And you demand that your denomination do likewise. And if that denomination is retreating, then it is time for you to speak up. This missionary arm of the church inaugurated in Samaria will be consummated at the parousia when the elect out of every nation will have been gathered into the everlasting kingdom of our heavenly father the woman at the well in Samaria is among the first fruits of the nations Christological, soteriological, eschatological and now verse 43 where we have this transition in movement from Samaria to Galilee, where we have noted the pattern, as I mentioned, on the microstructure of the handout, after followed by a verb of movement, and Jesus goes forth into Capernaum or Cana in this case. Verse 43 is the beginning, then, of a bridge section to a new act in John's story of Jesus. But this bridge section, 43 and following, has its own structural integrity. You will notice verse 45, the phrase, into Galilee. It is already there in verse 43. In the bridge section, 43 to 45, we have a mini-inclusio, which marks the transition as a self-contained unit. But why? Why does John insert this bridge section and then mark it off with an inclusio, delimiting it as a narrative unit? The answer is in verse 44. 
something of central significance is sandwiched. Something of central significance is squeezed between the inclusio, between verse 43 and verse 45. It is the phrase, a prophet has no honor among his own. No honor among his own. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. This is a repetition of the exact phrase in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 11, so that the bridge section with its little mini-inclusio is a stunning contrastive device. Jesus has been among Gentile Samaritan outcasts, chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. He has been proclaimed a prophet, verse 19 of chapter 4, in their midst and honored by an invitation to remain, to stay, to abide with them, verse 40, and believed on as the Savior of the world, verse 42. Now he leaves Gentile Samaria behind, arrives in his own country, only to be regarded as no prophet, given no honor, and received as anything but the Savior of the world. The bridge section is drawing your attention to the contrast which exists from the inauguration of the prologue, his own do not receive him. But those who do become children of God. Now, verse 45 is describing a feast which, if you refer back to chapter 2, verses 13 and 23, is the feast of Passover and the things which they had seen, seen him do at the feast of Passover, chapter 2, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus' testimony, the testimony of the multitudes in 2.23, the things that they had seen Jesus do were the miracles he performed. How then are they receiving him? As those in chapter 2, verse 23 received him. As Nicodemus received him before his dialogue with him. They are receiving him as a wonder worker. But this is to dishonor Jesus. It is not to receive him as a bringer of the eschatological wedding, as himself the eschatological temple, as the bringer of an eschatological birth, as the eschatological bridegroom, as the giver of eschatological water. It is to flatten him to the level of physical human need, a gratifier of my need for healing, my well-being for trouble-free living. But my eyes do not rise above the horizontal relief which he offers. I do not wonder if he is a prophet. I do not have a spiritual thirst which he alone can assuage. I do not need God's wrath, that wrath which abides on me. I do not need God's wrath lifted, removed, borne up by one raised up between heaven and earth. I do not need a new birth, a birth from above, a birth from heaven. My earthly birth is quite sufficient. I do not need a living temple, brick, stone, money changers. This is sufficient for me. I do not need the wine of the Messianic wedding feast. The water of Jewish ritual is sufficient for my cleansing. In short, the Samaritans may need a Savior. All I need is a miracle worker. 
And so we observe that this bridge section, 43 to 45, this transitional unit, which links Jesus' Samaritan experience with the healing of the royal official's son, this transitional unit is signaling dramatic, vividly dramatic contrast. And it is also signaling dramatic closure. Now, the dramatic contrast has been laid out. The Galileans, like the Passover pilgrims in Jerusalem, are in awe of supernatural power, but not in awe of the supernatural arena or the supernatural person from that arena that stands in their midst displaying the riches of the eschaton to their eyes and ears. As Jesus does not entrust himself to those who display the faith of miracles at the Jerusalem Passover in 2.25, so he does not expect honor among his own Galilean countrymen. A royal official will honor Jesus. A royal official will honor Jesus in his own country. The final story of John chapter 4 is a story of stark and dramatic contrast as it is a story of stark and dramatic closure. And where is that closure? How is it that the healing of the royal official's son rounds off or completes or brings closure to John's story of Jesus up to this point? We must first be satisfied that there is closure. Or have I manufactured a concept for the purpose of my own dramatic effect? God forbid. The clues are in the text. I didn't write the text. The clues are in the text. Do you see them? Do you have eyes to see the clues in the text? Or are you reading the story with the eyes of the Galileans? Well, that's a nice story about a father and his dying son and Jesus providing a happy ending and he's a wonderful miracle worker and now moving on to chapter 5. No. Stop. If you're reading the Bible that way, if you're reading the Bible as a feel-good story, if you want to feel good about Jesus making a sick boy well, if that makes you feel good and that's all you want out of the story... If all you want to do is authenticate your, authenticate your feel-good feelings, your experience, then you've not really read the story. You've not really understood the story as John wrote it, as the Holy Spirit inspired it, as the actuality or historicity of Jesus performed it. I'm not denying that it's a happy ending story. But the happy ending is profoundly theological. It is richly biblical theological. If you flatten it to a mere happy ending story, it's no different than Cary Grant in Affair to Remember. This is not Hollywood drama. It's ten times better. All right, now, let's look at the clues to the dramatic closure which the story itself provides to this section or portion of John's Gospel. Where are they? They're contained in the connection, the inter 
linking the juxtaposition between the first and second Simeon of Jesus, the first and second miracle sign of Jesus. Where are the clues? Verses 46 and 54. Cana, where he made the water wine, verse 46. Verse 54, the second sign, second Simeon, Jesus performed. Chapter 4 ends where chapter 2 begins. In Cana of Galilee, that is not an accident. John is making closure to this section of his gospel by ending in chapter 4, the very same place he began in chapter 2, verse 1. What Jesus does in Cana of Galilee on two occasions envelops, brackets, and closes the cleansing of the temple, the interview with Nicodemus, the valedictory of John the Baptist, the divine appointment with a woman at the well, the harvest of the Samaritans, all these rich and wonderful revelations of chapters 2 through chapter 4 are enclosed within. They are bracketed within to miracle signs in Cana of Galilee. Now, he's given you the clue. I've started Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and I've stopped Jesus in Cana of Galilee at this part of the story, and I'm folding around that. I'm sucking into the middle of this a whole rich drama of theological displacement and replacement. Now, read it. Read it that way. What more can I tell you? I wrote it that way so you can pick it out. Now, see what I'm doing, because see what Jesus is doing. Don't say Jesus is a nice miracle worker, made the sick boy well, and that's the end of the story. On we go. All right. I'm suggesting to you that John has not done this coincidentally. He has written his gospel between chapters 2 and 4 intentionally. I am suggesting that he is a marvelous literary artist. He is a marvelous storyteller, as he is a super marvelous biblical theologian. I am suggesting that there is something very significant here, supremely biblical theological and redemptive historical here. I am suggesting that there is Christological, soteriological, and eschatological drama in this final miracle sign at Cana, even as there was Christological, soteriological, and eschatological drama in the inaugural miracle sign at Cana in Galilee. If you are reading, as John wrote the story, you are being involved in the drama, the closure. The Christological, soteriological, eschatological identification and participation with the arena, the person who opens that arena to you. John 4, 46, 54 is primarily not a happy ending story. It is an invitation for you to step inside the drama, for you to come to Christ as the royal official came, for you to go down to your house believing in Jesus as the royal official believed, This story at the end of John 4 is a story of death and life, and your story is a duplicate of that story. You are as surely at the point of death without Christ as ever that boy was. And you are as surely shut up to no hope save faith in Christ as ever that boy's father was. And John knows it. And that's why he gives you the story. 
This story reflects the drama of your death and the closure which comes in trusting Christ alone for your life out of the dead. That's why it's there. It's there to bring you into identification with the persons in the drama. All right, we'll take our break, and we'll come back and proceed. I'm going to hold you to five minutes again this week.